Hello there, and welcome back to the Vacation Bible School podcast. My name is Jason Kirk, and you will not believe it, folks. We have a very special guest this time. It is Emily Kirk. Hello. Hi. How have you been? Oh, actually really good for about a week. <laughs> some good things, have, some blessings have been deposited uh, here in the Kirk household um, that uh, that have brightened our spirits, and we're going to need it, folks, because it's time to go to war in the book of Joshua. Um, this, uh, Yeah, this this book's going to get, it's going to get rough, it's going to get violent, but uh, there's a there's kind of a, a twist about halfway through that should boost spirits a little bit, I guess. Um, Emily, what was your familiarity growing up with the book of Joshua? Uh, a bluegrass song that I sing. Are you going to sing a few sing a few bars? No, for us? no. Okay. <laughs> I we can we can insert some of the song here. Some recorded audio yeah. by someone else. So, uh, so this was a band that you and your family were in. Yeah, Sunflower Bluegrass. I started in fifth grade in this bluegrass band, and with my brother and my grandfather and uh, a random dude that was our banjo player and I played upright bass and we sang a lot of gospel songs and that's where I got a lot of my Bible information despite going to church several times a week. Hmm. So this is this is what stuck. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you sing a song 4,000 times, yeah. it sticks. <laughs> uh, just in case anyone has uh, has forgotten the fact Emily's from Kansas, there you go. It's confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> Sunflower bluegrass. <laughs> so, uh, so you sang a job. Joshua song. Yeah, it was called Joshua. It's called Joshua. And I'm going to guess, I mean, I already know the information, but I know what I would guess. So I'm going to pretend I'm guessing, honestly. I'm going to guess it's about walls falling over. It is. It was like a four-part harmony where you sing one, it's like a round of, of music where people, one, one person says, and the walls came falling down, the next person says, and the next person, and the next person, and Joshua marched seven times around, and that's the gist of it. Yeah. There is no war mentioned. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get, we'll get into that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> we'll discuss why why the uh, the the wall falling um, might have been the entire war, I guess. So I think for most of us, the book of Joshua is, I think most church kids generally have the sense of like, okay, that's when like the Israelites, like Moses is gone and they take over stuff. There's the walls. Oh my gosh, the walls are so incredibly important. Uh, what what an image, what a memory, uh, cartoons and... I think part of that is because like, it, like the song states you know they they win this war by marching around the walls like yes. that is the war is the march around the walls and i guess the people just collapse at that point i don't really know but it, there's no there's no um it's not like they have to do anything other than like wow can you believe marching like gave them this city and their faith their their faith because they just did it their they faith, did what their they were faith told. in god knocked down the walls i think that's about all we all they had to do is march around it seven times <laughs> they they they're obedient and their faith was what did it. That's that's how it was always explained to us. Everything was faith. Yes, pretty much. In Jesus. Uh, the Israelites' faith in Jesus tore down the walls is basically it. <laughs> Honestly, I think most people probably have no idea where some of these stories fall in the Bible, so they probably do think that's legit. There's that, too. Also, uh, the name Joshua, very, 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 very similar to the name Jesus. So they might be onto something. <laughs> Um, so now Jesus could do that. No, Jesus could tear down walls, uh, especially if they were made of money, because he hates it. Um, so we 
are skipping ahead. <laughs> Spoiler alert, just a little <laughs> bit, folks. Um, we're starting a new section. The the, the Torah, the, the the law of Moses. It's it, that 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 section is in the books here on the VBS podcast. We are breaking new ground, literally, because we're entering the land of Canaan. Um, before we really get going, as always, this show we would like it to be welcoming for people who believe all the things, none of the things, and everything in between. If you're a 100% believer or 0% believer, you might have a bad time at times, but anyone in the middle, well, we hope you like it. <laughs> uh, this section has different names depending on the Bible you're looking at. In a Christian Bible, it'll be called the Histories or something of that nature. In a Jewish Bible, it'll be called something like the Former Prophets. And exciting news, these sections are different. The orders of the books in the Christian Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible are different for significant reasons. We're going to go with the Hebrew order because it is a better story. Um, Christian theology sort of depends on the Christian order to some extent, but it, story comes first here on this program. Uh, and we'll explain those differences as we get to them. Joshua is the next book up in both. Just be advised once you get past Judges, oh, Christians were hitting scramble mode. Um, the author of this book, of the book of Joshua, uh, canonically, you're not going to believe it, folks. It's it's Joshua, Moses's right-hand man who took over at the end of Deuteronomy. Um, most scholars haven't really believed that for a really long time. And even traditionalists agree there are parts that were added after the time of Joshua. It, and you'll see, like, as we go through this, that was something I very quickly picked up on. Like, why are they speaking like this? It was like, now, and and they remain this way, that way to this oh, yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. Like, they're so, the, it says now so many times, and it says, and it remains that way to this day so many times, which, yeah. hello. Joshua wouldn't have written that, like, right. while he's in the middle of a freaking war. And also, that is similar to Deuteronomy, where Moses says that uh, at least once. Moses says, and you can go look it up. You can go visit it. It's still there in Deuteronomy, which, hey, that's an interesting clue uh, because scholars believe the, let's call it the main Deuteronomist theory. Um, as always, whenever I say the word scholars, I'm referring to a group of smart people and there are groups of smart people who will disagree with every single detail. Um, but the main theory is that Deuteronomy's authors also assembled most of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings in the decades around the 600s BCE, maybe assembling older stuff, maybe tacking on uh, stuff later, but that's the gist of it. That's 20% of the Hebrew Bible's chapters, or two or three times as much of the Christian Bible as the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, this Joshua King's history is uh, inspired by Deuteronomy at very least. Also, if this assembler happened to be the prophet Jeremiah, happened to be working more or less solo, then that chunk would be almost as big as the entire New Testament. We're reading important stuff here. Deuteronomy was a rebooted origin story for the nation of Israel, a story that recast this evidently multi-religious nation as one revolving around an extremely exclusive monotheist religion. And now, in the book of Joshua, that story is off and running. And remember, since ancient history is often recommending a certain way of life, so much of the Bible's story mode is written from the POV of Deuteronomy, which is reform your way to this very specific monotheism. People who are alive in this tiny part of the world in 600s BCE, not all of the Bible is totally obsessed with that. Ecclesiastes, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Genesis. Yeah, they're about God, but they're about lots of stuff. 
a huge chunk of the story is so obsessed with exclusive reformist monotheism. Uh, let's see. Blah, blah, blah. Let's get going. Chapter one, Joshua. God tells Moses' right-hand man, Joshua, Moses has died. Uh, remember, Moses wasn't allowed to enter Canaan because he turned the magical age of 120 or because he got the weird water sin in numbers or uh, there's some better story reason that got deleted or something. If if Joshua was Moses' right-hand man, don't you think he would have known he had died already? <laughs> God's, God's really obvious sometimes. Like God told <laughs> Moses, you're old. Moses <laughs> is like, gosh, I know. <laughs> so Joshua's been part of the story since Exodus when he was the general who led Israel's first ever skirmish after they'd escaped Egypt and Mount Sinai. He camped with Moses and Numbers. He was one of the two spies who believed Israel could conquer Canaan. Scholar theories about whoever the real Joshua might have been. Uh, maybe uh, some sort of leader of a local militia uh, got, you know, his, his character got merged with some facets of Moses and stuff. Um, God's continuing to promise Israel land as far as the Euphrates, a promise God also made in Genesis and Deuteronomy. Uh, we know the kingdom of Israel never really got quite that big, but you can find tons of maps where people try to include areas of economic influence to uh, try to show the Euphrates thing was correct. Maybe. Uh, but, but then again, hey, read God's promise closely. God says Abraham's children, plural, will inherit the land all the way to the Euphrates. So that would include Ishmael, other Semitic peoples. Okay. Uh, Joshua 1.8. We see Deuteronomy clearly looming large. God tells Joshua to meditate on the book of the law day and night. That is what Deuteronomy was about. Kings and leaders must be obsessed with Deuteronomy. Um, not just reiteration, but near exact quotation, says James Kugel about a thing scholars started to notice here. Almost as if whoever was writing down the words in Joshua had a copy of Deuteronomy in front of him. God repeatedly tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Soldiers speak to a general. That's a good t-shirt phrase. <laughs> God says this Joshua all the time. Joshua says it's too. It's a little catchphrase. And, and, and like to this day, it's the live, laugh, love of guys who go to the gym a lot. I just saw this shirt at Bucky's and it said, be <laughs> strong. And the T was a cross. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's right up there with like, I can do all things through Christ, which Paul meant about like starving for the gospel. But like, no, it's about squatting heavy. <laughs> Um, be strong and courageous in your uh, in, 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 as you drive. As you march seven times around. As you wait in line at Chick-fil-A. Um, the people say to Joshua, As we obeyed Moses, so shall we obey you. Which is great news because Moses and the people always got along really perfectly for the past four books. Yeah, that part was, it stuck out like a sore thumb because there was so much pushback on like everything. Yeah, but I remember. But all those people were killed. We're reading the Deuteronomy author and in Deuteronomy, yeah. Moses is the slave like tranquil soothsayer yeah, if we're if like the numbers author was here <laughs> joshua would already be like eaten by the by them or something yeah it, it was funny because immediately when i read that i was like what in the world yeah that's your first clue that this author is not the same person who wrote like exodus and numbers and and, and it's funny as the bible goes on like in like isaiah and stuff uh it, it's like as the, the the faithful tranquil dutiful israelites obeyed perfectly across the entire desert and it's like what <laughs> so the story of the Israelites becomes like the, the rough edges just get sanded off over time. Uh, chapter 2. Joshua rounds up the troops and does his first Moses move. Secretly sends two unnamed spies around the Canaanite city of Jericho, just as Joshua himself was once a spy. Uh, the first thing they did, the first action they take was quote, enter the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spent the night there. So I heard this story like a hundred times as a kid and no one ever admitted why the spies had to sleep over with their friend Rahab. 
<laughs> and like, just in case it's not obvious enough, um, it says Joshua sent these spies from the same town where the Israelites fell in love with too many sexy Moabites in numbers. Like the, the language here is priming you to think of Israelites and other people uh, getting along very well. Um, in Hebrew, the verbs are very clear. <laughs> These spies were her clients. Um, A quick note, as always, the Bible is nowhere near as sterile and prudish as people believe it is, whether they like to use that belief to police behavior or argue the Bible is lame. There are dumb laws and sick freaks like Numbers Moses, but over and over, the stories are about people being people. So the king of Jericho finds out there are spies in his midst and orders Rahab to give them up. She lies, saying they're already gone, even though she'd hidden them on her roof. She tells the spies, we've heard about Egypt and the Red Sea and the tribes you've conquered, it made our hearts melt with fear. There's a lot of verbs people use, but melt is a really effective one. Obviously, she says, your God is the God. She calls God the God of heaven, terminology which is actually pretty rare in the Hebrew Bible. The funny thing is this non-Israelite polytheist who lived hundreds of years before Deuteronomy is quoting Deuteronomy, the most monotheist Israelite book of all. But it gets funnier because extremely monotheist Deuteronomy might have been quoting polytheist Canaanites in the first place who talked about their all-father God as reigning over celestial pantheons. So it kind of works in the story that she's quoting this book that didn't exist yet. Um... Sorry for any background clattering. Our dog likes to walk on hardwood. <laughs> Rahab says, if I get you guys out of here, don't hurt my family when you conquer Jericho. She tells them where to hide in the hills, and they tell her to hang a red rope from her window as a signal to leave her household alone. Red, calling to mind Passover blood on the doorways in Egypt. Uh, it's easy to read Rahab as some sort of hero here, but some readers who have different cultural contexts, and you know, pe- people who come from backgrounds involving struggle against colonization view her as a traitor. Uh, there's a lot going on. Was Rahab just looking out for Rahab's family? Was she trying to save as many lives as she possibly could, knowing what was inevitable? Um, Rahab also calls to mind Lot in Sodom, the salvageable person in the city about to be destroyed by God. Rahab was never told by God or Moses or Joshua that the Israelites would win. She divined it based on what she knew about the world. Uh, quote, Rahab is the oracle of Israel's occupation, writes Professor Tikva Freimer Kinski. Rahab, who begins as triply marginalized, prostitute, Canaanite woman moves to the center as bearer of divine message. There's a lot of Rahab lore, obviously. Uh, in Jewish Midrash, she's considered so desirable just to hear her name is to lust. Uh, sound off in the comments if that's the case for you. <laughs> it didn't quite take place for me, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm not dwelling on the, the syllables enough. Um, some rabbis decided she married Joshua because they <laughs> Bible lore people just cannot handle bachelors. <laughs> they, like, like shipping. Or an unclaimed woman. That too. Shipping characters is a thing that has been with humanity for thousands of years. Like, Joshua needs to settle down with a nice girl. Um, These rabbis also decided their descendants included eight prophets, even Jeremiah himself, which would mean, if true, he wrote this story about his own great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma. Uh, Rahab's a good person in Dante's Inferno. She's a bad person in William Blake's big, weird personal religion. Uh, In the New Testament, she's the mother of Boaz from the Book of Ruth, part of Jesus's lineage. Um, Christians make a lot of Joshua and Jesus having very nearly the same name, so they draw a lot of conclusions from this book. Uh, They they like Rahab for a lot of reasons. The life-saving rope was red, like Jesus's blood. And it's true that I don't know what could be more Jesus than having a sex worker with personal agency in a divine 
divine lineage. Amy Jewel Levine has written about how all the women named in Jesus' lineage, Tamar from Genesis, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, were included not because they were each redeemed from sexual sin, as a lot of male writers conclude, but because they manifested righteousness. She also notes Rahab might be the first Gentile by birth named in Jesus' lineage. Also, at the end of this chapter, we see the first difference between Joshua and Moses. Numbers Moses went berserk about the sexy Moabites, while Joshua hears this whole story of his guy spending the night with Canaanite Rahab and says, great job, boys. <laughs> Good job gathering intel. So it is 100% biblical canon that these guys did the right thing by viewing her as a human worthy of trust and honesty and safety, and also that they might want to find her again for reasons we won't talk about in Sunday school. Chapter three, uh, finally time to cross the Jordan River, which is in flood season. They waited 40 years to cross it, and the time to cross it is in the middle of flood season. When the Canaanites least suspect it. Joshua tells the people to follow the Ark of the Covenant, the very special commandments filing cabinet carried by the Levite priests from a distance. And he's specific about the distance. It has an aura of power. Like it, it, it has this like known commodity, quantifiable, safe distance, like a, like a, like nuclear waste or something. God tells Joshua, you are my new Moses. So make sure everyone sees you walking out into the water of Jordan. Um, this is intentional propaganda. Joshua tells the priests to carry the Ark into the water and it parts just like the Red Sea did. Again, Joshua is very specifically the new Moses, again with small differences. This time, the people carry the law across the waterway. They didn't have that before. Um, Joshua tells the tribal leaders to build a monument of stones in the middle of the dry land beneath the Jordan River. <laughs> Emily, are those stones still there to this day? They are, That's apparently. That's what it says. I'm wondering, I kept wondering about how big these stones were. Yeah, the Rocks stones get thing... really heavy and, and of a pretty small size. Yeah, the stones thing is really confusing. It's like taking up, it, there's like two or three different stone stories at once and the only thing you know is if you go to the bottom of the Jordan River at the right spot you'll see some rocks I guess they're still there to they're this day still there to this day uh, chapter 4 verse 14 Israel stood in awe of Joshua just as they'd stood in awe of Moses that's what you want is the Israelites to think of you the way they thought of Moses um, a transition of power and trust but also a demonstration of power remember just a chapter ago Rahab said everyone in Canaan was scared by God parting Red Sea waters hundreds of miles away well now God's just done a Red Sea basically in Canaan. And sure enough, the Canaanite kings' hearts melt with fear as they hear about the Jordan River. Um, parting a river might not sound as impressive as parting a sea, but remember the Bible's Red Sea is not necessarily a thing on our modern maps called the Red Sea. Uh, listen to that episode uh, if you have not. Um, river across and... <laughs> Here we go! <laughs> what is it time to do? Weird penis stuff. God says it's circumcising time. It Apparently, wouldn't be an Old Testament book without it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, apparently nobody had been circumcising during the entire journey from Egypt. So Joshua grabs himself a flint knife, a flint knife, even though this was written in the Iron Age about a story in the Bronze Age. He's using a rock to carve up 40-year-old men. Um, 40,000 of them or something. It doesn't say Joshua told the priest to do this. It says multiple times, multiple ways that Joshua did this, as if all by himself until his arm was extremely sore. And bloody. <laughs> <laughs> the name of the place where Joshua does this translates as the Hill of Foreskins. Yeah. <laughs> It, it, yeah, it does. Three days later, all these guys are totally ready for war. Um, and I've, I've, you know, I'll, I'll bend over backward to defend a lot of like uh, biblical stuff, like like the Exodus. Okay, there's a real story there, all right? Genesis one, nah, that that's a legit poetic retelling of evolution, right? Like I'll find a way to believe pretty much anything in the Bible. Three days after being circumcised as a forty year old man, being ready for war, no, that's fake. 
The Bible lied right there. I, were they afraid someone was going to question them on, hey, are all these people circumcised? I'm conf- Yeah, God might. He keep well, trying no, to eat I, Moses. I mean, like, that they had to put this in there. Oh, yeah. The writing in, in yeah. there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is absolutely some priest came along and was like, <clears throat> We need to make sure this is included. We did not say during the wandering in the wilderness that uh, regular penis upkeep was kept, so we need to include that detail. The other guys were like, fine. Can you imagine the number of infections? What, at the Hill of Foreskins? That doesn't sound <laughs> sterile and uh, clinical to you. And the smell yeah. of the Hill of Foreskins? I mean, once you have a Hill of Foreskins, it's like, we are definitely not staying here. We're going to Jericho. We're leaving this. Let's Leave this pile behind. Leave this pile where it is. Uh, chapter 5, verse 12. Manna, the magical space cake that began raining on the hungry Israelites in numbers, ceases because they are now across the Jordan River. They are in Canaan. They are eating Canaanite produce. Hopefully, far from the Hill of Foreskins. Um, and then we have, uh, the, every Bible book must have weird penis stuff, and it must have a completely unexplained non sequitur that doesn't fit the vibe at all. Here, um, in this book about Joshua, a very straightforward soldier who loves logistics and confidence, um, encounters this mysterious guy with a sword who claims to be the commander of God's army, and Josh worships this guy. Yeah, where'd this guy come from? And nothing nothing comes of this. Yeah. It's just a guy. Um, but then they they like fully trust him though yeah and and that's it and like this guy isn't like doesn't lead joshua it's just an angel or whatever uh is just standing there being worshipped selling joshua he's standing on holy ground and like it kind of makes sense because it's like a militarist version of moses's burning bush but at the same time a lot of scholars think this story was just like a snippet from some bigger story that when they were assembling this book they're like you know what burning bush parallel boom throw it in um and thank you guys for throwing things in um all right it is time for, if you look on a map, let's consider it the Central Canaan Campaign. Um, the city of Jericho is locked down in fear of the Israelites. God tells Joshua, march all the soldiers and trumpet priests around Jericho for six days. Here we go, folks. On the seventh, as priests blow trumpets, Jericho's walls will fall and you can charge on in. Number stuff is obvious. Six days plus one. That's a thing all the way back to Genesis 1. Six is about work. Seven is about completion. In Genesis, seven days created the world. In Joshua, seven days destroys somebody else's. Right as they're about to blast the trumpets for the final time, Joshua reminds everyone to leave Rahab's house alone. Promise kept. Joshua says all the precious metals and stuff they find in Jericho must go into the Israelite treasury. Trumpets blow, walls fall, soldiers charge in, they murder women and children and animals and steal everything and burn down everything, but pat themselves on the back for keeping Rahab safe. Um, because Joshua said that thing about nobody taking anything, you're not going to believe what happens. What happens? Somebody took something. Oh no. Uh, but Joshua doesn't seem to know it just yet. Joshua sends out spies ahead of their next attack, and the spies tell him, yeah, this will be easy. We just need 3,000 soldiers. Nobody consults God about this, and that's meant to feel ominous. The attack falls, 36 Israelite soldiers die, and now Israelite hearts are melting in fear. Um, 36 out of 3,000 doesn't sound catastrophic, so it's possible there's some Bible math happening. Some people argue the 3,000 means like three like cohorts, three groups, whatever, but the, the point is that this is like the battles that were lost in numbers when the people were out of accord with God. Um, Joshua grovels before God, having a real numbers Moses meltdown, falling on his face. Here we go. Here we go. Now he's Moses. Uh, God, why are you putting us through this? You should have let us die out there. Blah, 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 blah. God's like, yeah, well, somebody took some of my stuff from Jericho. Find that person and burn him to death. That's magic. Yeah, sorry, it is. 
Uh, Josh- but also, Joshua stayed on his face for a while. You think so? I've, didn't it say like oh, yeah, later was- somebody had to tell him to get up, basically? Oh. oh, that's like a total youth group thing where it's like, <laughs> I don't know if y'all ever did this where it was like, you sit, everyone sits, sit in silent until you hear a personal word from the Lord. And, and, you, and, and only then can you stand and leave the, the, the auditorium to go play dodgeball or whatever. And everyone just sit there like, shit, uh, when do I stand up? I know. Right? And then eventually someone's like, I'm just leaving. And then it's like, <laughs> I definitely okay, didn't. Fine, I guess I heard a word from God. Anyway, we're playing dodgeball now. So that's that's Joshua. I don't remember this kind of thing, so <laughs> we went to different churches. Yeah. Um <laughs> So uh so yeah, J- Joshua figures out who did it during this vague like witch hunt process of just kind of like looking at people. And it's kind of creepy. Joshua's like, "Hey man, it's it's going to be okay. Like you just come clean." And it like you almost hope like, "Oh, Joshua's going to like, you know, forgive this guy." Uh the guy confesses to taking gold and silver and fancy garments and burying it in his tent then quote all israel stoned and burned the guy to death uh, also killing his sons and daughters and animals even though they didn't do anything wrong and even though the bible says you can't punish a kid for their parents sin and yeah we, that that was disappointing and yeah and and now it's like oh joshua is scary like deuteronomy moses you almost hope like maybe he would have given this guy another chance but joshua's like joshua's ruthless what i don't understand about the guy who supposedly took all the stuff anyway is he's traveling with this army what did he think was gonna happen yeah uh he just saw gold and his eyes lit up i guess yeah but like at this point in time if they're all like taking over these cities together and on and on they don't have a need for anything supposedly so why um because uh well didn't you see right there it said where satan tempted him (laughs) the devil on his shoulder um it was i I think it was probably because um he didn't trust that uh if he donate if he tithed enough to a mega church that he would be rich Hmm. anyway um, uh, scholar Robert Houston Smith suggests this execution might have been a human sacrifice meant to win favor with a war god. Something tons of people did all around the world th- at the time. And I mean, yeah, that's that's what it was. It was a human sac. In the Bible, it's a uh, it's a human sacrifice meant to win favor with a war god. Even though the Torah says multiple times that's bad. Uh, so with that guy's family murdered, Joshua tries again to capture the next fort. Uh, this time taking thirty thousand soldiers. Thirty thousand is wildly exaggerated. Uh, there are letters from around this time written by Canaanite kings who are like, hey, we're at war. I need 50 soldiers. Um, but at least we're no longer pretending there are 2.5 million Israelites. True. Um, Where did all those people go? How did we get from that number to this number? Whitlin. <laughs> because I don't remember the last time a population decreased so drastically. I mean, the book of numbers is a pretty drastic population decrease. Yeah. <laughs> God's kicking people, voting people off the island left and right. Yeah, but not to this point. <laughs> um, this town, uh, neither this town nor Jericho have been described in Joshua as wicked or deserving of punishment. Uh, Deuteronomy, however, argued, you know, all these people have been doing bad things. So like, okay, maybe. Uh, Joshua ambushes this town and the author does a big thing about the, like the clever logistics and the uh, the ambushing and all this stuff. Um, and uh, it, it sort of points out this like unique value that Moses never had. Like Moses was grand decisions uh, playing Civ. Joshua's small <laughs> decisions playing XCOM. Uh, I've seen Christian pastors go crazy overboard with this calling joshua one of the greatest generals ever what <laughs> because christian pastors have massive war boners but like <laughs> he did a basic 
music, like a, a little little decoy move and walked around a city blowing trumpets and stuff. I mean, you know, it did fine, but... There were only seven trumpet players for an army of 40,000 to hear, by the way. And that, yeah. I just can't wrap my brain around how 40,000 people heard seven trumpets. They're really loud. They're not that loud. Yeah, well, we should test it, I guess. Um, <laughs> Let's do that. Israel kills 12,000 men and women that day. Sure. Takes all the livestock and burns the city. Joshua lynches the king and buries him in the most disrespectful way he can without breaking Bible rules. Just dumps rocks on him. Um, this was how people all over the world have done war at many points in history. Uh, Israel would not have been the first or only Canaanite nation to do all of this. The Moabites bragged in the 800s BCE about destroying all the Israelites for religious reasons. Okay, I don't think that happened. Um, this is only an active problem for us if we view this book from 2,600 years ago as a role model to apply uncritically to our own lives in every way right now. Um, that said, good luck to Sunday school teachers who have to answer questions from uh, from the kids who ask too many questions about why all of this is okay. Uh, the, the answers I always got were basically just like, it's God's war. God can do whatever God wants. So that's the central campaign. Uh, next, Joshua's army turns south. Uh, a subplot of this book is horror spreading throughout Canaan as everyone hears what Joshua's army is doing. Um, now it's like these Canaanite kings are banding together. Um, another group, the Gibeonites, trick Israel into a peace treaty, pretending to be poor and helpless foreigners, even though they lived right under the Israelites' noses. Joshua agrees, but chapter 9, verse 14, did not ask direction from God. You numbskull. Um, and I mean, like, I don't know. Fair is fair. Like, Joshua conquered the, the fort by way of, like, deceptive ambush and conquered Jericho, you know, sending in spies and stuff, and he's been tricked himself, you know. All's fair in love and war. Yeah, game recognized game. <laughs> and, like, the, the second time in two campaigns, he's failed to ask God what to do. Um, Joshua keeps his word, but curses these people into slavery for tricking him. And uh, tensions with these semi-protected Gibeonite tribes people will continue for decades into the story. Chapter 10, verse 1, the Bible's first mention of Jerusalem by name. Jerusalem's Amorite king um, builds an alliance with four others to attack these Gibeonite allies of Joshua's. And now Joshua's stuck fighting to defend these people who just tricked him. But it's all good because God's raining rocks and or hailstones from the sky onto these Amorite armies and what's more. Stopping the sun in the sky at Joshua's request so the Israelites can keep murdering in broad daylight. Uh, in case you don't believe that happened, know-it-all atheist, the Bible says, is this not written in the book of Jasher? Look it up, atheist. It says right there in the freaking book of Jasher. Um, and we haven't found the book of Jasher, but it's in there. Um, it's some lost war poetry book mentioned by Bible authors a couple times. Um, there's another book like this we mentioned in our numbers episode because a lot of books were happening at the time and the ones that are in the Bible are the ones that made it into the Bible. Um, Joshua has his warriors prop their feet on the necks of these enemy kings, which is a common ancient Near East victory celebration like teabagging in Call of Duty. Here's another where it says that the things are still there to this day. This cave with these uh, teabagged kings is still in it. <laughs> I'm like, what if someone happened upon this cave and they open it and what? Like, oh, <laughs> what, would no. their, what would their first thought be? <laughs> these guys with footprints on their necks. Just, I should have listened in Sunday school. Um, um, Joshua captures more cities, destroying all of them, blah, blah, blah. Other kings rise up, but Joshua's just whooping ass, just crushing everything. Um, moving along, chapter 11 and so forth, the northern campaign. The northern kings assemble against Israel. Uh, some of these kingdoms are real, some are really vague, some are from elsewhere in the world. Quote, a great army like the sand on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. Remember, the Israelites are just guys walking around. These have chariots. Chariots are, are, are constantly referenced uh, in this part of the Bible as like 
leveling up. That's like we have swords and they have tanks. This is a difficulty spike uh, fast. Massive things are happening. Here we go. This is going to be one of the most epic war stories ever. This is Helm's Deep in Stalingrad. And then the whole chapter is just Joshua beat this guy and that guy and this guy and that guy and this guy. And like Joshua's OP, completely OP. Every town burned and looted and everybody's killed. And it like, it's boring. <laughs> it's just a chapter. And then John Cena won and then John Cena won and then John Cena won. Um, chapter 12 is literally just a list of the dozens of kings Israel has defeated since the middle of numbers. By kings, we sort of mean feudal mayors of of small towns uh, because all of this makes it feel like Joshua's Genghis Khan but zooming out the map of all these conquests is like it's it's like Delaware between the Dead Sea and Mediterranean um, and by the time this book was written the Israelites were Rhode Island surrounded by Assyrian Alaska to their credit here they probably had no idea how big the world actually was so I think that's probably correct yeah <laughs> <laughs> it felt very grand. Yeah. And so the Bible inflated numbers to help you get this sense of how grand it was. Yeah. And like, let's keep in mind, we're reading uh, a history written around the time of Deuteronomy when the kingdom is like completely overwhelmed and surrounded. We're reading vulnerable people talking about how tough they used to be. We used to run this whole neighborhood. Okay, but the neighborhood's tiny. Yeah, well, we ran it. <laughs> uh, chapter 13 and on. Boring stuff. Dividing the land. Um, God lists all the land Joshua hasn't taken you failure starting with the land of the philistines hey that'll loom large um god also lists the geshurites sidonites gebelites sidians and a whole bunch of other people and like joshua's got to be feeling like a big failure like man i thought i murdered so many people but and god's like don't worry about all that dude you're really old um <laughs> Which means, like, you're so close to dying. Um, so anyway, Joshua, like, get to work dividing up the land you took. Um, and, and the next eight chapters is just, like, real estate deeds, tribe by tribe. Uh, and, you know, innocent indigenous people who need exterminating, according to Joshua. Um, just a few notes to know in these eight chapters. Caleb, Joshua's friend and the other spy who led the way in numbers, asks to conquer an important town for himself, a, a town that includes, uh, according to lore, the graves of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and... And yeah, and, and 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 Caleb gets to this is a big honor. The name of Caleb then rings throughout history as the most youth group boy name of all time. <laughs> Um, uh, chapter 13, 22, it becomes canon that the Israelites killed Balaam, the Tom Bombadil guy who hit a donkey in the book of Numbers. Good, he shouldn't hit that donkey. Yeah. Uh, chapter 15, the tribe of Judah gets a ton of land. <laughs> Guess which tribe happened to be by far the most important at the time Joshua was being written? Guess whose land the book of Joshua was mostly written in because all the rest was already lost. Spoilers. Um, chapter 15, 19, Caleb is recorded as giving land to a woman who asked for it. Land with Water springs, no less. Moses would be appalled. A woman. A lady? Seventeen three. those five women who were owed land by Moses back in Numbers, Joshua makes good on it. Moses is spinning under that hill he was buried at the age of 120 by all these lady folk having land. Book of Joshua is downright feminist. I think this is the most feminist book so far. I really do. Rahab. Rahab's a hero. Giving women things. Joshua kills people equally. Joshua hasn't griped at anyone about, like, lady stuff. 
it's true. women have gotten land here we go girls uh chapter 15 63 the tribe of judah is unable to conquer jerusalem even though joshua killed its king oh man oh foreshadowing here some scholars think this is two different story versions slammed together but uh, jerusalem there's a there's a there's a lingering plot detail for the next season um chapter 19 9 the tribe of simeon's land is inside judah's which goes all the way back to the curse at the end of genesis simeon was one of joseph's brothers who massacred a bunch of canaanites and got punished for it seemed to me he's getting a head start on things why is it that all these people who who, like do bad things and murder a bunch of people still get to live but like this guy who hid some silver and gold <laughs> his family dies because of it uh 1949 <laughs> after all the tribes get land they give joshua a retirement town uh his land is nothing special no big throne he even has to rebuild it himself his buddy caleb got way better land um every now and then joshua does something cool like if if you, if you say yeah joshua's right to murder all these people then joshua getting this like humble little retirement town is like oh, okay that's cool um and maybe his wife was rahab allegedly the hottest woman of all time and it's great great for them at the age of 110 um chapter 20 a concept we haven't mentioned much but should probably mention at some point uh it appears here and there god sets up cities of refuge which were like neutral ground for like criminal fugitives they can go to and not be murdered like it's it's like uh oh uh oh someone died run to the city of refuge and we can figure it out um chapter 21 is about the levite priests getting land uh and they it's kind of like really weird how much land they get like they're kind of just supposed to mingle amongst the people but it's like the author is uh <laughs> must have had a lot of friends who are priests or something because like the priests are just getting tons of stuff here chapter 22 verse 10 a couple tribes end up with land back on the other side of the jordan river technically outside canaan they build an altar there and this infuriates the main 10 tribes uh they interpret it as worshiping other gods they say you're doing the sexy moabite heresies um and the outnumbered altar builders on the other side of the river are like what in we built this so you guys wouldn't come over here accusing us of rejecting you guys. It took like 10 minutes for the conquerors to start yelling at each other about what is and isn't God's land because people always act like people. Chapter 23. Joshua gives a big final death speech, very similar to Moses and eventually Samuel and David, possibly written by the same author. Uh, reiterating Deuteronomy stuff, follow the rules, God will keep stealing from other people and giving you their stuff, but if you start making babies with the people whose land you took, God will be mad and take your stuff. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of taking stuff happening. What did God do with all this stuff he didn't need it just gave it to people who had made the right babies joshua then recounts the entire uh hebrew story so far from abraham rejecting polytheism to joseph going down to egypt to moses's adventures and 24 13 quote i gave you land on which you had not labored towns you didn't build and vineyards you didn't plant i mean yeah that's that's kind of the problem that's kind of our whole argument against this book the thing you just said out loud uh 24 4 justice for esau jacob's brother our abraham episode we all liked rowdy antagonist esau at least as much as we liked his alleged good guy brother jacob and here in joshua it is canon that esau was still a good dude given land by god how about that our rowdy hill boy was an okay guy after all uh 2415 a constantly quoted bible verse as for me and my house we will serve the lord so uh that means we are quoting a bronze age warlord who is saying you're free to worship canaanite or babylonian gods and i'm free to kill you for it that's what we're saying when we quote that verse it's like a don't tread on me shirt joshua is very much a war so joshua is also not only the feminist book it's also the war guy book <laughs> something for everyone in here huh. uh weird, weird compilation of things <laughs> it's for war ladies this yeah. is the war girls book <laughs> it's the girl boss book joshua makes the people constantly repeat 
repeat that they serve only one God and it's like uncomfortably repeated. Like the people are like, seriously, we, we keep saying this because we mean it. Um, again, we're giving voice to the Deuteronomy agenda. Joshua dies at 110, not quite maxing it out like Moses did. And finally, after all these books, the bones of Joseph, the dream boy with the coat are buried in his father's land. Joshua ends just as Genesis did with the bones of Joseph, now returned centuries after being sold into slavery. The book ends with an Israel that's both a briefly invincible conqueror and also well short of the power it set out to be with enemies inside Canaan and far larger empires all around it, plus already showing signs of internal tension. Tune in next time in the book of Judges for so much internal tension. So um, I think the main thing about the book of Joshua is like, is this story real? Did this happen? Because if it did, what in the world does that say about God and religion and the book and, and, and so many billions of religious people who've sworn by this book and so on and so forth. Um, so quote from Robert Alter to start us off. What the last several decades of archaeological investigation have established is that there was no sweeping conquest of Canaan by invaders from the east in the 1200s BCE, and that many of the towns listed as objects of Israelite conquest were either uninhabited or did not come under Israelite rule until considerably later. The question is why the Hebrew writers, largely under the ideological influence of Deuteronomy, felt impelled to invent a narrative of the conquest of the land in which a genocidal onslaught on its indigenous population is repeatedly stressed. In the book of Joshua, we are very likely reading an embellished origin story of how, hundreds of years before the story's writing, Israel obtained its land, embellished with an extremely clear agenda, being completely obsessed with separating the Israelites from surrounding people, particularly on religion. At the time of writing, Israel might have really been about to be erased from history, folded into empires, Uh, and, and if Deuteronomy was the argument that these people should lock onto one identity no matter what, Joshua is that argument with sharp teeth. From Professor Gene Tucker, uh, these authors, quote, were at once historians and theologians. In a time of national disaster, it was important to preserve the story of the people, especially since the institutions that transmitted the national memory were in disarray. As theologians, they interpreted their present Babylonian exile as the results of a sinful past. A quote from Hebrew professor Dr. Dora Mboyasango. The purpose of the book of Joshua was to inculcate in the people of Israel an identity that was based on the land. It was basically through religion that they had obtained their land. Their God had given it to them. Their continual possession of the land depended on their faithfulness and purity. Thus, in the belief that they had to remove all temptation in order to be faithful, they developed the ideology of the total destruction of indigenous inhabitants. End quote. So, this Deuteronomy people apart agenda is being pushed by the king's royal reformers in the capital, King Josiah in the 600s BCE. The average Israelite might not care whether they're ruled by an Israelite king or some neighboring king, married to a Philistine or a Moabite, worshiping alongside Amorites or Gibeonites. Just like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we're reading separatist nerds explain how they think history should have gone. They think the establishment of Israel in this land should have gone like the book of Joshua. We're not getting to hear from the Israelites who'd been completely fine with their neighbors or didn't like King Josiah's monotheist reforms. And you can go back through the details of this book. The story of Jericho, this idea we get in Sunday school that Jericho was this unconquerable metropolis with massive walls so thick you could ride chariots on top of them. Did you ever hear that? I did not. We heard that all the time. 
<laughs> Carmen said it in a 1988 song. It was shown in Christian cartoons. I found church websites that say right now they were riding chariots on top of Jericho's walls. It is on Joel Osteen's website under his byline right now. Um, the, the walls of Jericho. Chris Jericho named his finishing move after it. We played at the start of this episode. The, band, the legendary hardcore band Walls of Jericho. It's this massive image, the great and mighty towering citadel of Jericho. There's not a word in the Bible about Jericho's walls being big enough for chariots or really any kind of special walls at all. Where do people get that from? So why why all of the embellishment and people that are supposed to know the Bible? It's conflated with something the Greeks said about King Nebuchadnezzar's walls in the like 100 times bigger city of Babylon. Um, and they just liked that detail and decided to build up Jericho as much as possible to make the Israelites sound unconquerable. Um, there, there's no chariot wall races in the Bible, not even in Babylon. Um, there's not even an indication that the Israelites couldn't have conquered the city's walls the old-fashioned way if they had 40,000 soldiers. Um, the story gets told like the Israelites were massive underdogs against Jericho, but the Bible itself doesn't even, it sounds like a ceremony marching around a city. Like the, 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 There's more in the story of Jericho about the marching and the sevens and the music and the ritual. What's funny too is if you think about having to march around a city seven times in one day, that city can't possibly be very big. Yes! <laughs> if you're marching tens of thousands of people around a city every single day and the city's doing nothing about it does this sound like some incredible place so um archaeologists have found that jericho really did have impressive walls that might have been among the world's greatest at the time they were built but here's the punchline they might have been built thousands of years before joshua showed up Lots of archaeologists believe the town was uninhabited during the rise of Israel, or maybe just a regular small town with some pretty cool ruins. The ruins are cool. The walls are very interesting. The Bible just, uh, the Bible makes a great story out of them, and then Bible interpreters have gone absolutely crazy with it. Um, there's one theory that maybe it wasn't some act of God knocking over the walls. Maybe it wasn't the magical, heavenly, holy sound waves and their faith and, and their trust and obedience and all this stuff knocking over the walls. Rahab lived on the walls. Part of her chapter is about how she lives right against the wall and is able to manipulate Jericho men who work the gates. Why else spend an entire chapter on her and constantly refer back to her? Why else would loud noise be a signal? It says Rahab's whole family is on Joshua's side. What if her family's like a hundred people in a city of a thousand? Jericho was an inside job. Trojan horse Rahab was an espionage genius. Joshua's most famous victory belongs to a woman. So there's a general theory about Jericho offered by some archaeologists. Uh, a lot of Canaanite cities really were destroyed around the 1300s and 1200s, but that's the case with like the entire region region, Greece, Turkey, Syria, Egypt, uh, this like completely insane time period called the Bronze Age collapse where like everyone has so many theories about what happened because everything was going wrong and it's like even smart historians start to sound like ancient aliens guys talking about like the mysterious sea peoples and whatever but like the book of Joshua is happening during all this complete and total regional madness and you can find like wildly like, completely skeptical uh, archaeologists who say like the, the, the book of Joshua is just absolute fabrication. 
question. Um, and you can also find a lot of pushback. But like the Book of Joshua has been a huge, huge battle for, for a long time um, with lots of archaeologist drama. Look up uh, Israel Finkelstein's various uh, various disputes with other archaeologists. And also, you'll never guess whose side the guy with the name Israel Finkelstein is on. People have argued about Jericho, but it just seems to me the Israelites told themselves a story about what the super old city was doing in their territory. Maybe this was a local memory of the city falling due to earthquakes, combined with everyone's various religious explanations, and the one we have is the one in the Bible. And like, this is an example of the Bible is really useful history. Like, because of the Bible, we know Jericho's walls were a thing of like local legend. And then we found the walls, and that's cool. But like, the idea that sound waves knocked them over, we, we don't have to believe that part. Um, Jericho's one of the world's oldest cities. Did you know that? Huh. <laughs> yeah. Like, Jericho's, I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense. Jericho's like legit really, really, really cool and really interesting for like all the reasons besides the ones we get in church. Um, that fort, the town of AI, the second one, the one that uh, Joshua tried to conquer and then that, that went poorly. Um, again, it's quite possible that never happened it was just a story told a, a rah-rah thing about how like, look how tough we used to be. Um, that town's name in the Bible, AI, can literally mean pile of stones, pile of ruins. Um, the place we think might be this town might have been abandoned a thousand years before Joshua showed up and we could have nothing but a story that the Israelites told themselves about that pile of rubble, we did that. And it a, a, an interesting theological story that gives us both history and local mythology. Um, the stuff about the kings banding together against the Israelites, that's actually fairly plausible. Uh, around this actual point in history, we have records of Canaanite kings complaining to the Pharaoh about being harassed by militias that could have been the Israelites. These militias were even called the Apiru, which might have eventually added the word in Hebrew, or maybe not. Uh, we know all this uh, based on Egyptian records since Canaan was still part of the Egyptian empire this entire time, which, yeah, that in, in, in real life, Moses, the Exodus, it was from one part of Egypt to the other. Canaan was still in Egypt this entire time. Um, if Joshua's Israelites really were obliterating all these towns, the infinitely more powerful Egyptian empire would have just swooped in and crushed Joshua. But Egypt doesn't do a thing in the book of Joshua. Why? Because Joshua was written hundreds of years after Egypt collapsed. Joshua's authors don't care about being true to Egyptian history. Old news. They wanted a story that would inspire them past Assyrians and Babylonians. The Gibeonites, the tribe that tricks Joshua into letting them stay. That's a mythological explanation for why, like, hey, hey, wait a minute. We have this book that says we conquered this land and eradicated everyone, but my best friend's a Gibeonite. Oh, well, that's because his great, 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 great grand whoever tricked Joshua. Um, just on and on and on. There, there, there's just every part of Joshua is, uh, we have to keep in mind, it is not written to the standards of exact academic 21st century history. Joshua was written more than 100 years before the historian nicknamed the father of history was even born. It's not attempting perfect factual history. Uh, and like, that's only a problem if we need it to either be 100% perfect or 100% wrong. As long as we're cool with it being somewhere in the middle, it's all just interesting. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of people who need the Bible to be 100% accurate. And I think those people haven't actually read the Bible. If your whole persona is Bible guy, but you don't know what's in it. <laughs> There's a lot of those people. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the hard part to so kind I of said, reconcile. So I said the other day, it was some, for some like school board dispute or whatever. They were like, this book has environmentalism and it's not biblical that God wants us to take care of the environment. And it's like, bro, that's Genesis like 1. Bible. That's Leviticus 
25 that what are you talking about god cares about whether sparrows live god says to be nice to like yeah so much so much um a quote from the oxford nrsv uh the idea that historical writing should capture the events as they really were that historians should attempt to write an objective account of the events of the past is a relatively recent notion that developed in european universities several centuries ago end quote we wouldn't expect perfect data in a work published 2000 years ago in south america or australia or iceland so why expect it from an even older work once we stop worrying about the minority of christians who consider every word of the bible perfectly literal yes minority we can both be amazed by the relative quality of the history and think about what the embellishments mean robert houston smith says the author's concern was not to preserve old traditions in an academic manner but to present the conquest in such a way that would have clear theological significance for his readers end quote often biblical histories use familiar stories from the authentic past mythologically to explain why things became the way they were or didactically to explain how to make things go better the next time we're reading history mixed with historical fiction and folklore and guesswork and propaganda and theology all written without wikipedia and i think it's understated that the bible wants to make stories stick in head so it's trying to be entertaining the bible knows it's wild so <laughs> did the book of joshua happen um yes israel was undoubtedly a thing around this time period it's it's written about by egyptians in 1200s bce um joshua describes things as being where they really were uh, according to archaeology egyptian records show there really were canaanite lords banding together against uh somebody who sounds kind of a lot like israel like there, there's lots of of theories about who these people might have been but the bible probably is right about several things um also book joshua was fake because uh trumpets don't knock down walls for one thing um Why don't you slam them into them yeah that's true for a really really long time <laughs> yeah. probably gonna damage your trumpet yeah um there were lots of archaeologists who have pr- hoped to prove joshua totally accurate but been disappointed um i think uh as an idiot i would propose that the best answer to is the book of joshua accurate is kind of maybe um and i think that accomplishes a lot of things because like if you're comfortable admitting the bible contains just about every genre sometimes overlapping and are fine viewing the bible as different writings that are making different arguments with different degrees of factualness then um you don't have to defend genocide so that's pretty cool um and you can argue this genocide never even happened how great i'm for that how great would that be (laughs) and how much um better would the world have been if european colonizers had never been able to quote joshua while trying to justify stealing land so interrogating the history can make the future better as well because that's a real world consequence of treating religious literature like it's a how-to and reading old books as if you're the main character of them today we've been treating the book of revelation as if it's about the current generation for 2000 years now and now we have QAnon. bad readings of the book of joshua have contributed to the suffering of millions of humans over and over the character of god in this approves loudly or with silence as joshua leads genocides just so one group of people can have stuff they didn't make to whatever degree this happened in real canaan it was infinitely beneath the standard of a loving god the one portrayed over and over throughout the hebrew bible same goes for when europeans fancied themselves joshua and tore apart two-thirds of earth and the same goes for current religious partisans who treat select slices of history as if they completely overrule all the many other thousands of years in which lots of people have lived within the land called palestine by the greeks at times with multiple religions treating each other as humans in real life the process of israel 
Israel forming a tiny nation might have involved divine selection, small battles, syncretism, trade routes, political assimilation, sexy Moabites, and an Egyptian heretic like Moses evangelizing egalitarian monotheism among polytheist Canaanites. There are historian theories that the original Israelites might have been intimidating nomads or socialist peasants or annoying revolutionaries or peaceful Bedouins who lived around Canaan's aristocratic cities and took them over. And maybe all that stuff's true. James Kugel writes, the Bible's secret, these scholars say, is that the people of Israel weren't outsiders at all. Most of them had been in Canaan since time immemorial. Gene Tucker writes, it is far more accurate theologically and historically to speak of what happened in the era of Joshua as settlement rather than conquest. Um, Hebrew professor Moshe Weinfeld has argued this whole idea of completely eradicating enemies was, quote, utopian from the perspective of these religious reformer authors, because we're reading the fifth Bible book in a row about how priests and prophets thought history should have gone. The actual early religion of the people who'd become the Jews, based on what we can guess beyond just the Bible itself, might have been, quote, an ecumenical faith, according to scholar George Mendenhall, who loved to get in arguments uh, about the original Israelites being just regular hill folks. He wrote, a Catholic religion in the best sense of the term, the very purpose of which was to create a unity among a divided and warring humanity, end quote, a faith that united poor people, widows, orphans, and immigrants against tyrants and empires and warlords. In the book of Joshua, we're reading a fantasy about what it'd be like if the tyrant warlord was on your side for once. I read Exodus and work to believe it, not in giant frogs attacking the pharaoh, but in a holy rebel leading oppressed people to liberation. Joshua's not worth fighting for like that. Let's end on this quote again from Dora and Boisango. The book of Joshua serves as a warning against constructing a religion that is exclusive precisely because these stories, emphasize stories, of relentless massacres shock us. So that's the book of Joshua. A bunch of bad stuff didn't actually happen, probably. Yeah. All those times that Joshua did not consult God before battling these towns and bad things happened, this is the book of what happens when you don't consult God about it first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think uh, you, dear listener out there, before you attempt to um, to do a genocide, consult God first. Yeah. Um, and if, if God says yes, try again. <laughs> try, <laughs> Just keep trying. Try a different God, maybe. Uh, use a different name. Um, Something. <laughs> have you tried unplugging your God and plugging it back in? <laughs> uh, I think uh, boldly, I think the official stance of this podcast is that genocide is bad and using Joshua to uh, justify it is, is also bad. Yeah, I agree with that statement. Um, if we're doing a one to five rating of the book Joshua, I'm, I'm guessing you're not going to go too high here. Uh, maybe like a 1.5. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to go... I'm going to go three and a half, I think. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting history. We're into the part of the Bible where it's like, oh, hey, we dug up something that said that had this this word on it. So like we know something, something happened here. And that's like, that's really cool, you know? And like the the moral of the book of Joshua is like, okay, that's bad for earth and humanity and everything. And <laughs> sure, that sucks. Um, but like just as a book, as a work, pretty fascinating. I mean, they have something called the Hill of Foreskins that had to take it down in my book. <laughs> that's at least a star for, for me. <laughs> <laughs> in opposite directions for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's it. Uh, that's the book of Joshua. Uh, obviously, there's a billion more things to say on it, but uh, hey, that's an hour. Um, up next is the book of Judges, which is uh, it's it's less grand scale uh, mutilation and more uh, zoom in Game of Thrones type stuff. So at no point in the 
the next few episodes will uh, the uh, the weird carnage stop. So that's fun. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon. Uh, we do uh, some stuff on there. There's like stickers and um, monthly Discord stuff. And we have a Discord humming pretty much around the clock. And show notes and so on and so forth. Uh, Twitter, VBS Podcast is the Twitter. There's also an Instagram. I always forget to update. Uh, I'm on Twitter, the Jason Kirk. Emily is on Twitter. Haha, <laughs> it's Emily. There sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> she pops up uh, like once a year to heckle me about something <laughs> from down the hall. <laughs> and uh, folks, I would just like to say, as you go out into the world, uh, as you um, seek to set new personal bests at the gym, um, be strong and have courage. Two things related to the book of Joshua you might be interested in reading. One is short. One is book-sized. The first is a 1989 article available online called Canaanites, Cowboys, and Indians by Robert Allen Warrior, who writes, quote, The obvious characters in the story for Native Americans to identify with are the Canaanites, the people who already live in the Promised Land. He says, scholarly agreement that the real story of Canaan was very different from the book of Joshua, quote, should not allow us to breathe a sigh of relief. Historical knowledge does not change the status of the indigenous in the narrative and the theology that grows out of it. The article discusses the idea of resolving the tension between colonialism and the Christianity that enabled it. The article does not indicate that resolution is anywhere near simple. The second is the book Native by Caitlin Curtis, which we enjoyed reading as part of our Patreon book club. We have an hour-long discussion episode up there. Uh, The author was raised both a member of the Potawatomi Nation and a Southern Baptist, and she writes about many things, including how colonization hurts everyone, not just depriving Native people of land, life, and dignity, but also depriving Europeans and their descendants the opportunity to learn from Natives. Case in point, this book taught me more about prayer than 20 years of church ever did.